1: Coming up on today's show, we talked about the metaverse this week. What is it? Well, we'll find out. The transition to a low-carbon future could ultimately cost almost a million jobs in our country if action isn't taken. And a huge decision by the Supreme Court yesterday. People can sue cities in Canada over snow removal activities that cause injury. Boy, that throws open the door. So yesterday we talked for a few minutes about Facebook and their plans to... I don't even know, what is it, move into the metaverse, bring in a metaverse? I I, I don't even know. But we talked a bit about what the metaverse is or what the metaversees are, because there's not just one. Um, And um, Brad Eisen reached out to me and said, hey, you know what? I know all about the metaverse. I'm heavily involved in the metaverse. That's what I do. And I said, okay, you can explain this to us then. So... um, He's going to do that for us today. Brad joins us now. Uh, Brad is the founder of Hazardscape, disaster management coach. Brad, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time.
2: Good morning, Shay. Thanks for having me on.
1: So we talk about this metaverse, and it's obviously in the news now because uh, Facebook talking about uh, some sort of announcement coming next week regarding the metaverse. From my understanding, basically, it's a virtual reality environment, right, where you move around, you interact with people. It's basically like a virtual world. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, absolutely, and and it's it's less about the metaverse right now, and it's it's more about you know Facebook wanting to create a metaverse that is the metaverse. And just to give your listeners some background, you know the the term metaverse is made up of two words: meta, being the you know defined as beyond, and verse being like universe. So really, the metaverse term is used for. Moving beyond the current internet, moving beyond the static, you know, web pages we see today, and what Facebook, uh, you know, what Mark Zuckerberg has been working on since they purchased Oculus um, back in the the early, I think it was around 2013, 2014, was moving into this virtual reality space where he understands that in the future, you know, uh, way into the future, we're not going to be bound to these static websites that we see today, people will be logging into a 3D environment that will, will take over sort of a website. So think of it like, um, you know, if we could do a 3D replica of West Edmonton Mall, yeah, and, and we went in and we scanned the it, total interior of the mall, everything right down to the colors and the tiles, including the big ship, and then put all the stores in each, you could log into, through a VR headset, into the mall a virtual replica, go into a store, look at their products, and purchase right from in that store. That's going to be the new website.
1: Okay. Um, now, you're involved with this, right? And you've actually brought a number of organizations and people into uh, one of the metaverses that you deal yeah. with. So so tell us how, how you use this. How does the metaverse work with what you do?
2: So we use the a metaverse to facilitate training, meetings, um, just have one-on-one kind of water cooler encounters where we can log into a platform and you navigate with your keyboard much like you would in a, a video game and you have an avatar and you walk around a 3D space. It's, it's on your computer screen or you can log in with a, a virtual reality headset and, and you literally walk your avatar into a 3D uh, boardroom. There's a table, there's web screens, there's you know windows that you can look you can see out and it's got 3d uh clouds mm-hmm. and our avatars sit around the table we're all connected with a headset like a uh, a microphone and, and earphone headset and and you talk through voice data so you're looking at the person's avatar but you're hearing their real voice okay and your avatar can stand up it can wave it, it can move around and I hold uh, quite a, you know, I've done training in this environment. People come in and sit. I do the training. We can display PowerPoint, PDFs, YouTube videos, everything you can in a real classroom. It's just instead of using video based conferencing like Zoom or, or Microsoft Teams, we're using this 3D platform because one, people like the fact that they're not on video all the time. Okay. Uh, they like, they like. It's that not actually thing. you, right? It's, it's, a, it's a
1: virtual representation of you.
2: Yeah, I go into it, uh, it's called an avatar engine, and I build uh, an avatar. There's different, uh, you know, shapes for my head, for my hair, my glasses, the clothes I put on. And then that little character represents me in this virtual world, but people can hear my voice, and I'm live, just like people can hear me right now.
1: Okay, now, um, when we talk about this, and... uh Let's talk about the benefits. I mean, obviously, accessibility, um, the, the cheapness, uh, the efficiency in doing things. You know, I imagine there's a lot of upside to sort of incorporating this into whatever business you're operating or whatever life you're leading, I guess, right? Yep,
2: yep, yep, absolutely. So th- those are a lot of the benefits. Again, people like the fact that they're not always on video. They like the fact that, like, they can log into this platform and we have office hours. So my avatar is sitting at its desk. I've got my headset on. Another person logs in, they walk into my office, we have a conversation. Hmm. Um, So I've got it up on my my desk all the time. Those are some of the benefits. Um, And it is less expensive. I mean, we're never going to go away from physical events. But I think now we can use these physical events more strategically, and we can use these virtual events for high-stakes meetings where we don't want to spend thousands of dollars to travel for a four-hour meeting. The downsides.
1: Um, yeah. It seems whenever we introduce these kinds of technologies and they take off and they become sort of the way we're doing things, then we're trying to play catch-up in terms of privacy, safety, security, all these sorts of things. And I imagine it's going to be the exact same thing with the metaverse, right?
2: Uh, absolutely. And I, and I think uh, what we're, we're seeing, like, we're, we already see today, like, so, so for example, Amazon Web Services, when you attend a video conference with them or a training they record your voice and image on the video to use for marketing and different purposes. They're already doing that. Mm-hmm. In, in a virtual reality environment, um, there's nothing stopping the organization from, again, recording your voice, and now they're recording your interaction and behavior with another person. Okay. And so they're not only collecting this sort of 2D data about your name, email, uh, where you click and what you buy, they're now able to record you in, in an interaction. And, you know, I, I don't want to freak anybody out, but, I mean, with that data, you could develop a, an artificial intelligence app that predicts your behavior with another user, right? And so that's, for me, that, that's a, a big uh, issue and one of the big concerns. There, there's also some human rights concerns that will ultimately come out of this, um, for example, pregnant women should not be in virtual reality. They should, they should, they, they have apps for relaxation and things, but they should not be in a VR environment trying to walk around and navigate and work. It's, it's not safe. And, and you've also got people who are stereo blind. They can't see three-dimensional objects on a screen. Mm-hmm. So if, if we're looking at, if companies are looking at making these platforms an essential part of work, then, you know, does stereo blindness become a disability um because they can't partake in some of this work do how do how do pregnant women interact in a 3d virtual environment when they you know their doctor might say they can't be so how you know that there's that risk of being left out so there's a lot of those concerns right And I, I think it's more about being educated and cautious than than worried yeah um you know i've written the the office of the privacy commissioner the federal uh, arm about what they're doing to prepare for the metaverse and these new new data sets that companies can capture and use um, and i haven't got a response yet but i'm i'm hoping that they're preparing and anticipating uh, policy that can be used, so when Facebook does come online in the bigger sense, we're ready for it as opposed to reacting.
1: Um, you know, and not everybody has access to the kind of technology that needs you need to enter this metaverse, right? I mean, there's, that's another barrier that people are going to have to deal with, especially if it's a workplace situation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But I, I look at like there's a company called Accenture. They're they're big in uh, software app development. They just purchased sixty thousand. 60,000 um, Oculus headsets mm-hmm. that they are going to be deploying through to work and customers so they can start to adopt a more virtual reality-based work environment. And so I'm sure they're they're doing, I hope they're doing a lot of work on the impacts of, of that move with regards to hiring staff. Um, you know, there's going to be ergonomics comes into this. He- headsets are still sure. heavy. Um 30 minutes, I, I can be in a headset for 30 minutes before I start kind of wanting to get out of it. So, um, you know, it's a big investment, but companies are moving towards it. I, I would say if you're a small, medium sized business right now, uh, if you want to learn about it, that's great, but there's, there's no real rush to adopt this and start investing in it. Like, I, I would say do your homework, yeah. take, take a lot of time because there's, there's not this massive rush to it. Um, we, we are seeing companies like Nike, they're they hiring a chief metaverse officer to, to uh, put Nike in that space. They're going to be developing 3D replicas of their shoes that you can log into to an environment and, and look at and pr- potentially purchase. But um, it's, you know, these big players are doing it because there's a lot of hype around it right sure, now. They yeah. have the money. It's a marketing play, a big marketing play for them. I, I would say let them lead, let them develop the policies, and then we, you know, smaller enterprises that want to move into the space can adopt what they're doing and, and you know, save some money investment.
1: got a text from a listener, and it's a good question, saying, you know, I mean, you take, people get upset with self-checkouts. You know, how many jobs will <laughs> this eliminate? I mean, is this a job killer or a job creator, or do we have to wait and see how it all shakes out in the wash?
2: It, it's a job transitioner. Okay. So, for, for example, Facebook is hiring 10,000 software engineers in Europe to develop their or the metaverse. When, when you're talking about any type of virtual, even automation, um, you know, they're in Alberta right now. Uh, the, the Alberta Transportation Association is developing automated trucks to, to deliver goods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, there may not need to be a driver, but there needs to be an application engineer in the truck. So we're losing, we could lose jobs as a checkout clerk, but we're hiring someone else to do the software development or the, the application troubleshooting on the back end. Right, okay. And, and you know, it's not about, uh, you know, we don't want to hire babysitters in, in this tech industry, but we want to put, that's, that's why you hear a lot about the future of work and the Canadian government and Alberta governments moving to upskill workers for the future of work. We we may not need as many truck drivers, but we're going to need just as many software developers and engineers. Gotcha, it's a fascinating modelers, discussion, boy. You know, it's it, yeah, I mean, big big discussion. It's it exciting. Is. But if anyone wants to chat more, I, I'm I love talking about this stuff. I love helping. I've moved the Salvation Army uh, emergency disaster services team, both in Canada and a bit in the U.S., into this platform because they are they're adopting it um, because they see that it's it's saving them money it's bringing them more together with their volunteers and and they're they're moving into it so we've learned a lot over the last 2 years with this move and we've also transitioned other 19 other organizations into using the platform hmm. so it's yeah. happening it's good fun. stuff thanks Brad
1: okay, Shay. thanks appreciate the call uh, that's Brad Eisen founder of Hazardscape Disaster Management coach so i mean it's like all technology and we we talk about technology a lot on this show and it, you know once the doors open there's no stopping it right it it's a flood and um <laughs> this text. Uh, what is the point of this metaverse stuff? Pretty soon we'll have zero face-to-face, even if it's over video calls with fellow humans. We're going to be living a second or a double life. Uh, that's the concern that I have. This basically removes all reality in some ways. And how far down the road does this go? A lot of you saying, okay, so the metaverse is the Matrix. I got it. Um, we've. There's a lot of movies out there, right? You know, people yesterday mentioned Ready Player One and there's... Um, Wally, you know, basically where your entire life moves into a virtual reality. And it's scary. These movies never end well. I don't know if you saw this report that came out this week. Uh, certainly not encouraging. Well, I mean, it depends how you look at it. Um, the report from the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices warns that almost, almost a million Canadian jobs are in industries that are threatened um, either for big reductions or outright closures because of this transition economy, the move to clean energy. Now, timelines and stuff are all still up in the air, but this is happening, right? I mean, we've, we've talked about this many, many times. We can't deny uh, all the signals are there, but um, what do we need to do? It's not all doom and gloom. So let's get some insight on exactly where we stand here. We're going to chat now with... Um, Rachel Sampson, who is the Clean Growth Research Director at the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices. Rachel, thank you for your time this morning. appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, there are some out there who still, you know, want to rally against this and say, you know, well, you can't, you, the blah, blah, blah. It, we We know this transitioning is happening, even as much as some people don't want it to. You know, we can argue about timelines and all the rest of that stuff, but it is happening, and there's if you take a look at it, there's nothing that we in Alberta or even in Canada can do. This is a this is a global movement that's already well underway, correct?
0: Yeah, right now we have over 60 countries that are responsible for over 70% of global GDP and over 70% of global oil demand that have committed to reach net zero emissions by mid-century. And we acknowledge there's uncertainty into how fast that yep. is going to go. But when we look at combination with the um, actions of investors and technological change, it really is inevitable.
1: Yeah, and, and we're already well down the road. So um, you point out three key indicators that we can easily identify as, look, th- this is happening, this is already in place. What were those three indicators?
0: Well, one is policy change. So we, we now see governments are uh, putting in place real policies, so it's no longer just commitments to targets. It's uh, you know, policies on electric vehicles, on emission reductions in large industry, and those things are are now becoming more real. The second thing is investor action. Uh, investors are awakening to climate related risks in their portfolios and seeking to reduce them. For example, uh, there are investors with over forty percent of global assets under management yeah. who have committed to reach that net zero goal. And then technological change is is coming rapidly. And solar power costs have come down. over the past decade. So with increased technological change and investment, there's this cycle, this feedback loop that that means that that transition could come much more quickly than we anticipated.
1: Um, Now, obviously, this causes a lot of concern for a lot of people, especially here in Alberta. This province definitely on the front lines of these industries that you're talking about. Ultimately, though, it's, it's countrywide. I mean, all provinces will be affected in some way, Alberta perhaps most, but it's not just an Alberta problem, right?
0: No, for Al- Alberta has the highest proportion of workers in what we're calling transition-vulnerable sectors. But in absolute terms, Ontario actually has more workers in uh, in, in emissions-intensive manufacturing and auto manufacturing, which are also transition-vulnerable.
1: Um, now, when we talk about you know, the report coming out saying 880,000 jobs um, could be lost to the energy transition, that's a starting number. But uh, as shocking as that is, it's not all doom and gloom, right? I mean, we, there can be put... Plans put in place, there can be strategies developed that can avoid some of that, right?
0: Yeah, and that's why we called our report Sink or Swim, because businesses and governments have a choice, um, and the actions that they take to improve the transition readiness of companies to capture some of those opportunities that emerge through global low-carbon transition can really help avoid and, and offset
1: some of the job losses. What can they do? What what plans do they need to be making? Are there companies that are already making it? I mean, what kind of action can be taken now?
0: Well, we divide the strategy into three categories, depending on the drivers of transition risk and opportunity. So we have what we call demand creation sectors, which are those those. Um, products where there's going to be increasing global demand. So things like fuel cells, hydrogen, biofuels, carbon capture and storage. And then there's carbon cost sectors. So those are the sectors where really it's about emissions, where regulations, border measures, carbon pricing, that's the main driver of of profit risk. But then there are demand decline sectors, and, and that includes oil and gas and coal. And that's where the, the main risk to their profitability is, is not on the emissions side of things. It's on shrinking global demand for their product.
1: Right. So Which
3: we're what seeing. We're
0: saying for those, those, those companies really do need to transform into new business lines. And we see um, international oil and gas companies doing that, investing in clean technology, investing in hydrogen, biofuels, in order to position themselves to
1: succeed. And we're seeing companies already move in those directions, right? I mean, I'm just thinking of the auto manufacturers and their pledge to go all electric by, you know, I mean, in the next 10 years kind of a thing for some of them. So we're already seeing some companies adapt.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the auto manufacturers have recognized that they need to shift into electric vehicles in order to survive through transition.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. So we're seeing massive investments, big commitments to move to electric vehicles, and and that's changing much more quickly than people had anticipated a few years ago. Even,
1: yeah, absolutely. And we've talked about that a lot. Um, Rachel, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Great, thank you. That is Rachel Sampson, who is um, with Clean Growth Research Director at the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices. And whenever we talk about this, um, you know, a lot of the texts are the same, and 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 you, you all make valid points. We, you know, and she did say we know that demand. Um, is not going away. And I agree with you, you know, we, we the, as I've said a million times on this show, the demand for peak or the peak oil demand, um, by any estimate that you see from any official agency is not here now. And it won't be here. Uh, I think the, the shortest window some are saying is 10 years, which means the demand for oil globally will continue to grow for at least 10 years. Some say as far as 2039 before we reach peak oil demand. Then we will slowly see things taper off. But um, understand, in no way am I saying that oil and gas is gone today. No way. And I have said a million times, the people who say it is, and we need to move off oil and gas right now, it's a pipe dream. You can't. You can't do it. You don't have the technology. You don't have the energy in place to do what oil and gas do right now. You don't. And it's going to take time to develop it. But the other side of that equation is they're working on it and eventually one day down the road and i don't know how long it's going to be that we'll get there um and the other argument that you know is made in this report is um whether we like it or not that's where the momentum is right when she talks about big investment firms big companies auto manufacturers all saying, okay, we're moving in that direction. Now, we can yell and scream about it as much as we want here in Alberta, but it's not going to do anything because it's a global movement. So the point that I always make when we talk about this is, hey, we're in a position to meet that growing demand for as long as it grows and continue to meet the demand as the demand tapers off because it's gonna—it's not going to happen in my lifetime or yours. There will be oil and gas for, for, for a long time. And we're uniquely positioned as a provider of oil and gas globally in terms of ethics and standards and all the rest um, that we we should be able to capitalize on our resources. But at the same time, we do need to acknowledge the transition and and ready for it. Um, both things can happen at the same time, but we get into the argument of it's all one or it's all the other, and then nobody's going to win because those neither of those are realistic. But there is... A reality that incorporates both of them. And that's what I think she's talking about. Companies need to recognize this and start to explore the new opportunities that will come and be ready for the transition and adapt with the times. Or, as I said, you know, you end up being the guy sitting in the blockbuster, watching Netflix on your iPad and wondering why nobody's coming in to rent VHS tapes anymore because things change and things progress and you got to move with it. But at the same time, please don't yell at me on a Friday about oil and gas. I'm with you on oil and gas. It's not going anywhere in my lifetime, right? It's going to change. It's going to be different. Demand will go down eventually, but it's not going. All right. A really interesting story yesterday. Uh, Basically what happened is the Supreme Court of Canada had a case before it and they ruled unanimously that municipal snow removal activities are not immune from negligence and liability claims. Now, of course, this um, is sending shockwaves across our country in some circles. Uh, This means that all cities in Canada potentially um, could be subject to lawsuits due to how they remove snow. It's all centered around the case of uh, a woman in Nelson, B.C. She hurt herself while climbing over a snowbank back in 2015. She originally sued and she lost but then the BC court of appeal overturned that the city appealed it to the Supreme court on and on it goes. Ultimately it gets to the Supreme court. They had to decide yesterday and they said, yes, yes, cities can be held liable in some instances for snow removal practices that lead to inergi- uh, injury. Now, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a big deal. So, let's get some insight on exactly what the decision was based on and, and what it means. We're going to chat with uh, Aaron Nelson, a professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta. Uh, Aaron, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate you joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Okay, so from what I understand, basically, they weren't saying yes or no in all instances, they were basically trying to decide. You know, there's a difference, because municipalities do have some legal immunity in some instances, right, depending on if they can determine that it's not operational. I mean, can you break that down for us?
3: Uh, I can try. It's, uh, it's a bit of a tall it order. Is. Um, <clears throat> this is an issue that uh, the courts in Canada have been dealing with for a long time, and it's been a challenge to get clarity uh, around this issue. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, the, the courts have said over the years that, in general terms, negligence law should apply to the decisions and actions of a municipality in some cases, but not all cases. And they've tried to create a distinction based on whether the decision in question is a, a policy decision or an operational decision. And that sounds pretty straightforward on paper, uh, but it can be very challenging uh, to apply in practice. And so what happened here was that the court was asked to clarify uh, past case law in which um, you know, they have tried to articulate how one goes about making the distinction between what's a policy decision and what's an operational decision. And here they said decision-making uh, at the level of how we're going to uh, plow parking spaces on a, a street in a downtown uh, core that's an operational decision. It's not a policy decision.
1: Is part of the confusion the fact that operational decisions stem directly from core policy decisions? It's the carrying out of the policy?
3: Yeah, it is. And of course, the city and any municipality or government authority that is sued in negligence will do its best to shield that decision by arguing that it's a policy decision. So any, any argument that they can make that might further that uh, defense, uh, will be uh, will be tried. And uh, here the court said, some aspects of snow removal could be policy, but this particular decision was very clearly not that kind of decision.
1: So, I mean, we shouldn't be considering this to be a blanket statement saying, hey, the city you have to clear snow in you know you're liable for whatever happens like we're getting texts from people saying well what if they don't clear the snow on the street and i slam into somebody and crack up my car i mean there are limits within this in terms of if there that would be a core policy decision rather than an operational decision right
3: well i don't think so i think the the sort of big decision about how much money to allocate for example to yes. snow snow clearing in general that would probably be uh, viewed as a policy decision, or it could be. Uh, but what the court said is that you have to look for certain features in order to identify uh, a decision as one of policy as opposed to operations. And so it's really, there's no sort of magic way uh, of ascertaining this. It's a real case by case factual analysis where the court will say, you know, what indicators are there here that suggest that this is a policy decision? Was it made by somebody at a very high level? of decision making did it require debate and deliberation or was it just you know the application of uh, an already existing policy to a specific context so it you know (laughs) i I struggle uh, with explaining this to my first year law students every year it is not an easy line to draw between what's policy and what's operations but i think here what the court says is that the decision that we're interested in was the Uh, approach taken to clearing these parking spaces and then leaving no access to the adjacent sidewalk in order to get to the sidewalk the only way to do that was to climb over the windrow that was left and the court said that's that's an operational decision that's a decision about how to plow those particular parking spaces nobody had to deliberate about that we aren't talking about high levels of decision-making and so we're not concerned that that kind of decision needs to be immunized from uh, the reach of liability. The other issue is that even if the court decides that the decision in question is operational and can be analyzed by the court on the basis of negligence law, just because something bad happened, just because someone got injured, doesn't automatically lead to liability. The court has to also conclude that the way in which um, the process was carried out was unreasonable it was negligent and that's what allows uh, the individual to potentially recover damages
1: yeah well indeed in the decision they say the fact that you cleared those parking spaces sent the indication to citizens of nelson that you should use these parking spaces and then go to the sidewalk even though we've got a snowbank in between the parking spaces and the sidewalk
3: Right, the court actually says by clearing those spaces you invited the public to use them and so you had an obligation to act reasonably and it's important to note that the supreme court's decision isn't the final word on this case they've sent it back uh, for a new trial because they said they didn't have a sufficient factual basis to reach <clears throat> pardon me to reach some of the conclusions so the uh, a BC court will potentially have another opportunity to look at uh, the decision and reach those conclusions based on the facts.
1: So, I mean, obviously the the final outcome here is, I would imagine cities will have to carry increased insurance, they uh, maybe lost some of the immunity that they felt that they had, to I mean, it, does this change things for the way that cities approach this entire, you know, core service that they provide each and every year right across the country?
3: I think it creates a bit uh, of clarity. Uh, certainly the risk maybe is a bit higher than it might've been perceived to be in the past. Um, I'm not sure the risk is, in fact, higher than it was in the past. I think that the trial judge made some errors here. I think that uh, the law already allowed this kind of claim to go ahead, um, but the trial judge misapplied the law, and that's what the Supreme Court uh, is trying to correct. Um, I do think that we might see cities actually face slightly higher insurance rates, uh, but that would have been on the basis that, the insurers and all players in, in this context were under the impression that there could be no liability here. And I'm, I'm not sure that the previous law really allowed that interpretation.
1: Interesting. It's, uh, we'll see how it plays out, but uh, obviously it changes things for, for a lot of municipalities across the country. Aaron, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. You bet. That is Aaron Nelson, who is a professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate
2: and review us.